Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. The number of people forcibly displaced from their homes has more than doubled since 2010. According to a new Global Trends report from the UN High Commission on Refugees, by the end of 2020, 82.4 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced. The causes ranged from threats of persecution, conflict and violence, to human rights violations and events disrupting public order. And those fleeing and seeking to make a better life for themselves and their families, well, they often seek entry in developed nations. The challenge of addressing the root causes of migration is no small task. But feeling the call to help immigrants in need, well, that's another story. For nearly 50 years, sisters Joanne Persh and Pat Murphy, two aging Catholic nuns, well, they're not slowing down. And as they age, one in her 80s and the other in her 90s, they have no intention of retiring. In fact, recently, they were arrested in the United States Capitol, protesting immigration policies. Here's reporter Helen Shin with their story. Sister Joanne Persh and Sister Pat Murphy, they're part of this network of nuns across the country. And they've been working with families who've been separated at the border. And they've been doing this work for decades now. They're 85 and 90 years old. I was really hoping for the chance to meet them, to see their work in action. Uh, Then one day, Sister Joanne called to tell me this. You know, we're going to Washington to be arrested. This is how the day unfolded. She's at the Senate office building with Sister Pat Murphy, her partner in prayer and action. The old 90-year-old lady, I mean, that's my claim to fame now, because I'm old and I'm a nun. On this morning in D.C., they're singing and praying the rosary. They stand in this beautiful marble rotunda with sunlight streaming in. There are over 200 protesters, Catholics of all ages, activists and clergy from all over the world. And the sisters, they wear these cardigans and T-shirts with the logos of the nonprofits they've started, along with sensible running shoes. Each holds a photo of a child who has died in the custody of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. That is ICE. And then this priest got up trying to bless those of us being arrested And then this officer blew this screeching thing out of the bullhorn. It's a peaceful protest, and it's illegal. The sisters ignore the warnings. As a Jesuit priest says a blessing, the officers handcuff the nuns, pulling their hands behind their backs not exactly the most comfortable thing. Of course, it's not meant to be comfortable. You're not supposed to be doing what we're doing. Pat asked the officers to please cuff her in the front. It hurts less and helps with her balance this way. But the officers don't listen. They take the protesters away in the paddy wagon. Once in jail, the nuns reach for the bail money they've been carrying, 
It's maybe $50 or $60. It's like lunch money in their pockets. They know the drill, because between the two of them, they've been arrested half a dozen times. The officer who hauled them away last year said, Oh no, now we need to go to confession for arresting an elderly nun. Here's Joanne. I said, no, you don't. I have the power to forgive. I'll forgive you. But he was real careful with how tight he made the cuffs. And if they put me in jail overnight, that would have been okay if I had to stay in jail for a while. I told you we'd just start a new ministry. We'd know that's where we were supposed to be right then. A few days later, I head to Chicago, where I meet the sisters for breakfast in their apartment. We're up at 5.30 in the morning, eating yogurt with flax and chia seeds. The sisters love sharing meals with others, but they hate cooking. It takes too much time, they say. Four tablespoons a day. No way, I can't do that. They've had breakfast together like this for decades now. They met as young nuns, working at an alternative school in Wisconsin. It was for kids who had dropped out of high school. Uh, Both went on to work at hospitals on the south side of Chicago. Uh, Pat then moved to Peru, where she directed a school near Cusco. After coming back to the States, she teamed up with Joanne again uh, to do their work in immigration. Now they've known each other for over 50 years. Joanne hates being late, so we rush out the door, while Pat looks for the car keys she's misplaced. And she patiently answers my questions about what it's like to be a nun. Did you wear a habit? Oh, yeah. We're old. We, we, we had habits from the time we were new. We drive long distances in their sporty sedans. Their cars are provided for them by the Sisters of Mercy, along with a stipend and a budget for their work. Do you want to sit in the front? Oh, no, no, no. You go ahead. Oh, I mean, there's a... Many of their friends, sisters well into old age, have lost their licenses and forfeited their cars. But not these two. For years, they've been visiting immigrant detention centers throughout Illinois and Wisconsin. There, they sit and pray and listen to the stories of the detainees. Officials have invited them inside during snowstorms and lockdowns, even. One of the officials says this. Would make his job easier because we would bring a peaceful presence into that agitated pod. The sisters head inside the detention center. Since I'm not allowed inside with them, I meet with a woman named Anita instead. The sisters had helped Anita when her husband was inside of a detention center like this one. Like so many others, she was so grateful she became a supporter and a friend. Anita's not her real name, by the way, but that's what she's asked us to call her, for her privacy's sake. I want to say my son was about five years old. He was in kindergarten. She's talking about the day her husband, who was undocumented, didn't come home. And um, my husband... He's from Mexico and had come to the States in the 90s as a teenager. Had been driving. I believe he was on his way to... He was heading to a job interview after dropping his son off at school when an officer stopped and detained him on the spot. It was like days before I even heard from him. Immigration authorities placed him in a detention center, a few hours' drive away. Eventually, Anita heads there with their five-year-old son. But once they get there, the front desk won't let them see him. Instead, they have to go to a room with video monitors. And this was the only way they're allowed to talk. I think it gives you like a 
a one minute notice, like a beep, that it's going to turn off. And at that point, then you leave, and and that's that's that like watching a TV. It, it it is like watching TV. Anita's five year old sat on the floor, anxious because he couldn't see his dad. He would just rip chunks and chunks of his nails off, and um, to the point that they would they would bleed. Let me share with you a quick backstory here. When the sisters first tried to get inside the detention centers about 10 years ago, the authorities wouldn't let them inside either. So they hired an attorney and proposed new legislation that would let them in. At first, they faced some opposition. And those opposing us were the Illinois Sheriff's Department and the Minutemen. So... (laughs) There we were, but it passed out of the committee unanimously. It let religious workers inside the detention centers. It changed state law. Now they visit every week with the dozens of volunteers they've recruited. And they sit and they listen for hours. And the sisters fill the commissary accounts for the detainees they've met. They give $10 to anyone whose accounts are running low. If you have $10 to spend, you can make a choice. You know, I'll make phone call. No, I think I'll buy ramen noodles. No, I really need soap. You know, that helps them keep their humanity. Each week, the sisters ask those on the inside, is there someone in your family we can call for you? Anita began to despair, wondering if her husband would ever come home again. When one day, she gets a call from a woman she's never met before. We just saw your husband, the voice says. And that's how Anita meets sisters Pat and Joanne. When Anita first crossed paths with Pat and Joanne, she had just one request. I had asked Sister Joanne once, I, I said, please, if the next time you go, if you can please give him a hug for me, I would greatly appreciate it. And I gave her a big hug, and she said, well, I'll... I'll see what I can do, um, because they're not allowed to touch, like even hold hands or anything like that. And at their next visit, Sister Joanne is praying with Anita's husband, when for just a moment, the guard has turned away. And she was able to give him a hug for me, and um, that was the best feeling, that he was able to get a hug. Um, And I'll never forget that, (laughs) ever. A lot of families give up. They stop visiting. But keeping connected to her husband through Pat and Joanne as her proxy, Anita says it kept her hope alive. Eventually, Sister Joanne and Pat help Anita find an immigration attorney. And with their help, her husband is released from the detention center. She remembers the day he came home and saw their son. It was his first time seeing him in almost a year. I was concerned that he had been, they had been separated for too long, that their relationship wasn't going to be the same anymore. That evening, you know, I started doing laundry in the basement, and then I heard a ruckus upstairs, and I thought, oh, thank God, they're back. But most of the other men who her husband was detained with, they've never seen them again. Many didn't have access to lawyers. Anita believes that most of them were deported. The next day, Pat and Joanne take me to Sukasa. It's a monastery they've converted into a safe house in southwest Chicago. 
It's one of several homes they've built for asylum seekers. Oh, once more. Okay. And when I say built, I mean they've overseen construction projects. They fought local zoning boards, and they met with neighbors who didn't want refugees in their neighborhood. And they convinced the archdiocese to back them in all of this work. Warm light shines through the stained glass windows. It casts these beautiful patterns on the thick carpet in the hallways. Uh, there's an elevator, but Pat insists on taking the carved wooden stairs. You've got good knees still. Yeah, they're not bad. They, Pat and Joanne lived here at Tsukasa during the 1990s. They were younger then. And they provided shelter for Central Americans fleeing violence and coming to the U.S. Over the years, nearly 160 people have called Tsukasa their home. It's another reminder of how long these sisters have been doing this work. That was Annie's room, and she was a, uh, an immigrant or a refugee, uh, a survivor of torture, um, and she came from El Salvador. Often she would run screaming out of her room at night, sometimes tumbling down the stairs, Pat says. And uh, her whole arm was burned from napalm, and it was all kind of shriveled up. And she was uh, impregnated by this military. And I, I don't know if she had more than one child. And one of our There are too many stories that are hard to hear. But Joanna and Pat managed to smile as they talk about the kids who lived here, who ran up and down the halls. So we had to celebrate every birthday and every holiday. You had to do that for the kids while the adults were bleeding inside. We continued down the hall, past a room full of warm winter coats and boots and car seats donated for residents who'd come from warmer places by foot. We come to a nearly empty wooden booth. This was a confessional. Let's see. Here we go. So, I mean, now they're using it to store the vacuum cleaners. When Pat and Joanne lived here, it was a medicine cabinet. It held the psychiatric medications for all the residents. After dinner, they'd line up like it was a dispensary. They'd escaped their traumas, but they were still learning to live with their memories. Triggers were everywhere. One young man who just went berserk whenever he heard a Christmas carol. It felt like their cars were on autopilot, Pat said, headed to the emergency room again and again in the middle of the night. The sisters have done this work with immigrants day after day for more than 50 years. Now their work is focused on visiting those inside of detention centers. They say that keeping busy like this, it's precisely what keeps them alive. It helps them press through those doubts that inevitably arise. A lot of times... You know, um, I I pray to God then and ask God, you know, where are you in this? And I, I still, I still believe that in some way some good will come out of this. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but I guess deep down, I've got to believe that.
You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back, sisters Joanne Persh and Pat Murphy open up about pain, aging, and the power of helping others. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We're taking a closer look at the activism of two Catholic nuns, Sisters Joanne Mersch and Sister Pat Murphy. Five decades of activism have taken a toll on each, but helping others, they explain, helps them cope with the struggles they encounter. Let's get back to the story. The sisters have done this work with immigrants day after day for more than 50 years. Now their work is focused on visiting those inside of detention centers. They say that keeping busy like this, it's precisely what keeps them alive. It helps them press through those doubts that inevitably arise. A lot of times, you know, um, I, I pray to God then and ask God, you know, where are you in this? And I, I still, I still believe that in some way some good will come out of this. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but I guess deep down, I've got to believe that. Pat has survived cancer and chemotherapy. Joanne manages fibromyalgia and lupus with chronic pain every day. A lifetime of work has caught up to her. I could sit home and say, oh, I have a lot of pain. Or I could work with my pain, make it my friend, and work together and just 
do it. Sometimes it's unbearable, even on her way to work. But once she's at the detention center giving someone a hug, she forgets. And then we go upstairs and I hear those stories. And by the time I was driving home, my pain was nothing. So, no, it doesn't stop me. This is why they drive, sometimes for hours, through blustery Chicago winters to visit emergency rooms and detention centers. They call politicians and speak at rallies and candidate forums. They have this uncanny way of getting people on board with them. Joanne carries a cell phone. It's this flip phone with hundreds of contacts. Pat prefers a paper address book. It's a few inches thick, and it's always in her purse, filled with the names of friends. We need each other, and we can, when we're down or low, we can draw the God out of the other people who surround us. I've had to leave that, live that all my life, to draw the God, the God and God's help out of each person, each bite of food, um, each cup of tea. Uh, the person we meet on the street because we're meeting God in those times. And they lift our spirits. They can make us laugh. As Joanne scrolls to the contacts on her phone, she also finds the head of Midwestern Ice and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, who's more than just their senator. He's the ranking member of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Immigration Subcommittee. The sisters routinely pray for both men. Durbin, a lifelong Catholic, says he appreciates that. As far as I'm concerned, they they really embody uh, the values that those of us who call ourselves Christians believe in, and so many other religions, too. Uh, and they've proven it with every day of their lives. I've also heard that Sister and Joanne and Pat are very convincing. Would you agree, and have they ever convinced you to do something? Well, I can tell you, I, I grew up going to Catholic schools, and nuns were always very convincing, every one of them, uh, along the way. Uh, but when it comes to legislation, we usually see eye to eye. If there's ever any difference, they always win the argument. And here's their secret when working with anyone, even when they disagree. To look at the ICE officer and the correctional officers, and remember, they are children of God, and they also deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And if we do that, then we can expect that back from them. The officers like Sister Pat and Joanne so much, they've invited the two to ICE staff parties. In one recent Christmas... The officers even asked the nuns to bake cookies for the detainees. A major moment in jail history, and it may never happen again, but they were thrilled. They don't ever get anything like home-baked cookies or candy. They both like sweets, especially bun cakes. They prefer chocolate, but won't tell me this straight up. Because despite all they do, they don't like to talk about themselves. On Fridays, Pat and Joanne drive to the Broadview Processing Center for their weekly prayer vigil. A few dozen others join them. They gather under this dark fence with barbed wire coils and a flapping American flag. This was where you'd come to board the white vans that would take you to the airport for your deportation flight. That is, when ISIS determined that you aren't allowed to stay. Many are returning to places where there's violence or war, 
and leaving family in America. For all undocumented people who experience fear and live in a state of uncertainty. Each week, Joanne and Pat and other volunteers would board the buses just before they would leave. Craig Musin, a friend of the sisters and a clergy volunteer, describes it this way. And then every seat in the bus has two men on each seat, and everyone's jackaled to hands, waist, and, and they're looking at you. From the front seat, the sisters and the other volunteers, they turn around and they look each person in the eye and offer a prayer. You let God give you the words, and, and then you go into the Lord's Prayer, and they join you. And then um, you start crying. <laughs> and then the bus takes off. Each week they huddle outside, no matter how cold of a Chicago winter morning. There are days that it feels too early, too cold, and too dark to come out to pray. Sister Twin and Pat are the ones who convince the others to show up on days like this. They pray. Sometimes it's the rosary, sometimes it's a Muslim prayer or a Jewish blessing. And they always end with the same old protest song, We Shall Overcome. Instead of ending with the refrain we all know, We Shall Overcome Someday, they sing a different refrain with dogged determination. We shall overcome this year. Thank you all very much. I asked Pat and Joanne if they have any plans to retire. Well, we don't know what that means. If someone says, when are you going to retire? I want to know what do they want me to do. My cousins who can move to Florida. You could sit home and eat bonbons. (laughs) And gain weight. And gain weight, yeah. (laughs) But... I will know when God is telling me, you've done what I asked you to do. And right now, I don't hear that voice. I have strength. My mind is okay. I still feel called. When I know it's time to retire, whatever that means, I'll know it and I'll do it. But it's not yet. It might be tomorrow, but it's not today. That was Sister Joanne Mersch and Sister Pat Murphy. This story was reported and produced by Heidi Shin. It's part of a series called Sacred Steps, produced by KALW's The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with the University of Southern California's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. To hear more stories like this, check out the new Spiritual Edge podcast. Just visit thespiritualedge.org to learn more. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us.